0: Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Matthew Booker, Vice President for Scholarly Programs at the Center, and your host for this episode. For the past several decades, authorities have become increasingly concerned about the threat posed by emerging diseases, not only to public health, but to political and economic stability at a global scale. Attention has been particularly focused on tropical hotspots, such as West and Central Africa where human encroachment has increased the likelihood of encountering novel pathogens with potentially disastrous consequences. Our guest today is Greg Mittman, Vilas Research and William Coleman Professor of History, Medical History, and Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin, Madison. This year, as a fellow at the center, Greg has been working on a new book tentatively titled Bloodborne, Invasion and the Politics of Disease. That explores the ecological, economic, political, and social forces that have simultaneously turned regions of West Africa into profitable sites of natural resource extraction, productive enclaves of biomedical research, and hot zones for pandemic threats. Welcome to you, Greg.
1: Thanks so much, Matthew. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Greg, you're writing about a small place on the map of the world, but your project puts Liberia and its neighbors squarely in the center of our global pandemic moment. You show that the costs of economic development in West Africa aren't just environmental destruction, but grave threats to health for those in the region and beyond. In some ways, this past year, we all lived in Wuhan and we all live in the countryside of Liberia. Why have biodiversity-rich tropical regions like West Africa become identified as disease centers in scientific and popular understanding?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And, you know, it's a it's a question historically that, you know, I don't think we have really good answers to, you know, so if we go back to books like Richard Preston's The Hot Zone, you know, published in, in the 1990s, when there was a lot of concern about emerging infectious diseases, uh, arising from HIV AIDS and, and Ebola, and journalists science writers and so forth, were were targeting places like the equatorial rainforest of, of Central and West Africa as a place where there were vast numbers of species, including viruses, and speculations that as there was uh, habitat fragmentation, rainforest destruction, greater human-wildlife interactions, um, that these would create possibilities for spillovers for diseases to jump from animals to humans and new diseases arise, such as HIV AIDS. So there was a hypothesis about the cut Hunter that you know, HIV AIDS possibly emerged from bushmeat hunting in Central Africa and where uh, Hunter uh, cut himself in the process and Simeon HIV came into his body and, and through that evolved into HIV AIDS. Very speculative, but we see in the 1990s a real concern around emerging infectious diseases and particularly identifying hotspots in the world where there was this potential for zoonotic diseases to uh, jump from animal to human.
0: How did you come to see this region's history as both one deserving of its own history and also as a kind of geopolitical story or as a global story.
1: You know, I became particularly interested in Liberia, small nation, as you said, 43,000 square miles um, that became the first free black republic in West Africa, became independent in 1847 um, and has a long historical relationship to the United States and became uh, very important in the 1920s when Firestone Tire and Rubber Company became interested in securing a lease for one million acres of land uh, to grow rubber in Liberia. And that really solidified Liberia's strategic importance to the United States. One of the things that happens with the building of this large industrial rubber plantation is a concern with disease because one of the greatest impediments for Firestone to be successful was disease. Both plant diseases that would affect the rubber tree, uh, this tree that originally grew in Brazil, Hevea brasiliensis, was basically stolen by the British, um, developed into plantation style. Crop in Southeast Asia and then was imported in, into Liberia and, and grow successfully there, plantation style. So diseases that affected the plant, but also diseases that affected human labor. One of the things that we see is in scientists, so Firestone funded a Harvard uh, medical expedition to Liberia in 1926 with some of the major names in, in tropical medicine at the time on that expedition. Is that these plantations became sites in which scientists began to think about the ecology of disease? That is, what were the environmental and social relationships that interacted to create conditions for certain kinds of diseases to thrive? And so, Liberia became a very productive site for thinking about disease ecology um, and its history, which eventually culminates in in the 1990s in terms of these concerns with emerging infectious diseases. Initially, Firestone was very concerned about yellow fever. There were a number of yellow fever outbreaks up and down the west coast of Africa in the 1920s. Other diseases such as smallpox, onchocerciasis, river blindness, uh, all became objects of concern.
0: In some ways, what you're describing is, as attention is also an irony. That is, that the very same mines that created conditions for pathogens to thrive were also some of the sites, I say mines, but I mean both the plantations and the mines. They also were the sites where some pioneering medical research was conducted that has, in some ways, at least, helped us to confront some of these diseases, if not cure them. So how do we respond to that reality that U.S. and European companies and consumers have both in some sense created, but also helped to treat some of the diseases that you're describing?
1: Right. I think that's one of the real, you know, ethical challenges in this work and that that really uh, drives my interest in this project is. So, for example, one of the members of the Harvard Medical Expedition to Liberia in 1926 was Max Thyler who would go on to uh, win the Nobel Prize for the development of yellow, the yellow fever vaccine work, which began on that expedition. And we see that Firestone Tire and Rubber Company funded the establishment of the Liberian Institute for the American Foundation of Tropical Medicine in the 1950s, again, as a site for largely Research done by American uh, researchers on tropical diseases, on things like malaria, schistosomiasis, and a, a number of other what are now um, called neglected tropical diseases. But just as those areas became sites of natural resource extraction for things like Liberia sits on some of the purest iron ore in West Africa. And in the 1950s, it became a, a site of interest by. U.S. Uh, steel companies um, and mines were built, as, as you mentioned. Just as they, those areas became sites of natural resource extraction, they also became sites of biomedical extraction so that Liberians themselves became objects of scientific study, diseases were sampled, blood was taken, and without any real effort on the part of these American researchers, to help build research and medical capacity within Liberia. So Firestone, for example, one of the ways in which it's promoted its plantations was through medical humanitarianism. They created a hospital. They provided free medical care for Liberians who were working on the plantations. But that care in the 1950s and and into the 1960s was segregated. That hospital was, was racially segregated. And there was a different kind of medical regime that was applied to the plantation managers who were all white foreigners and the laborers on the plantation. And, and so those, the, the Liberian population itself became a kind of resource uh, for American biomedical research, much like the rainforest or you know the iron ore in those regions. For decades, the unwillingness of those companies to invest in build, helping build capacity within Liberia ended up having a big impact during the 2014-16 Ebola outbreak in West Africa that, that many of us are familiar with.
0: This book is part of a long commitment to West Africa in which you have produced several journal articles and a previous book on the Firestone rubber plantations in Liberia. But that's not all you've done as part of that commitment to that region. You've also done oral history efforts. You've been part of two documentary films. And in fact, looking at your work, it's, it seems to me that much of your recent work could be classified as public humanities rather than traditional scholarship. How has working in West Africa changed your approach to doing historical scholarship?
1: Uh, wow, there's so many ways working in, in Liberia has really transformed the way I think about scholarship. I mean, one of the things about, for example, filmmaking and documentary filmmaking that's so different than traditional scholarship is that it's a collaborative medium. It, it involves many different people. It involves directors and producers and sound crew and, and then informants themselves, and how do you build trust in those relationships, right? Because there's, there's also a way in which filmmaking can itself be ex- considered extractive. That is, one's taking other people's stories and packaging in a way that then is uh, distributed elsewhere uh, throughout the world. And one of the real concerns in making film was how to build trust, how to build partnerships in which people themselves that were contributing to the film felt invested in the project and and that it was also benefiting them. So for example, the Harvard Medical Expedition took, took a lot of photographs and film footage. The film footage itself is some of the earliest motion picture footage of Liberia's past that we know to have survived the Civil War, which had never been before seen in Liberia before. And this was the first opportunity for Liberians themselves, uh, many of whom we talked to, who saw their fathers and grandfathers in this film footage to tell their own stories about those relationships that had been established. So one is, in terms of transforming scholarship, really the importance of bringing humility to the project, um, the importance of listening which is such a such an important skill, and to really shed one's own preconceptions and beliefs um, and misunderstandings in order to be able to really hear the histories in that region that people hold largely in an oral tradition, um, not in a written tradition. And so oral history became a very important technique and tool in gathering a lot of material, and in a country where the illiteracy rate is close to fifty percent, in order for that work to be shared, film becomes an important medium rather than the written word.
0: You began this project, as we've said, some time ago, and in your proposal, you framed it then in the context of the diseases you've mentioned, of of yellow fever, of Ebola, for example. But the COVID nineteen crisis has Shaped your year at the National Humanities Center. And I wonder if you'd be willing to talk about how that shaped your scholarship or your ability to make progress on this book or or perhaps even change the way you think about this work.
1: Yeah, it's had a big impact for a number of reasons. One is being unable to travel to Liberia and, and do field work there this past year. The other is interestingly, the COVID-19 pandemic has really shifted the geopolitics of thinking about infectious disease. So in the past, regions that have been targeted, like Central and West Africa as disease hotspots or Southeast Asia, in the context of COVID-19, the continent of Africa up until the, the present moment has been one of the least affected countries. So many of the criticisms that were leveled against Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea during the 2014 to 16 Ebola outbreak by Western nations. Things like these kinds of outbreaks could only happen in, quote, failed states, or blaming the alleged irrational behavior of West Africans for attacking international healthcare workers, or the kinds of conspiracy theories that were circulating in West Africa, that, for example, the Ebola outbreak was a result of U.S. military interests that, you know, had unleashed this virus there. We see that a lot of those criticisms could now be leveled at wealthy Western nations like the United States, right? And that has really created an interested dynamic, I think, among writers and scientists and uh, intellectuals on the African continent. Really about pushing for more of a kind of argument around the, the decolonization of global health, about uh, the importance of building capacity within within Africa around uh, healthcare systems, and and really showing that the kinds of devastating impacts that we see of these kinds of outbreaks of emerging infectious diseases is so dependent upon the kind of structural violence and structural inequalities that exist within any country and that we see so prevalent in the United States today, for example, with the real differential morbidity and mortality rates faced by African-American and Latino and Native American populations in the context of this COVID-19 epidemic which we can really trace to systems of structural racism against a particular groups in the United States.
0: It's an excellent example of the ways that events can force us to reassess the scholarship that we're a part of and also can change the narrative when it comes to understanding who suffers and why they suffer. Greg, at this point, I'd like to ask you if there's a question you were expecting me to ask or hoping that I would ask, and that I did not.
1: So I think one of my concerns and interests in thinking about the history of emerging infectious diseases and the stories that we tell about them are this this fascination with origin stories where did it first erupt? And so we saw in the beginnings of the you know the COVID-19 pandemic the ways in which certain of our past political leaders in the United States for example blamed China, it was the Chinese virus, it was the Wuhan virus that had severe consequences in terms of uh, racial stigmatization against people of of Asian descent, uh, not only within this country, uh, but around the world a similar very similar thing happened during the 2014-16 Ebola outbreak in West Africa again where what there was this preoccupation with origin stories of like where did this virus uh erupt and you know and who was to blame and again uh West Africans uh, particularly people from Liberia uh, Guinea and Sierra Leone either living in those regions or in the African diaspora felt themselves this racial stigmatization. There was, a, there was a widespread social media campaign by Liberians that was widely circulated on social media that said, I am a Liberian, I am not a virus. And so when we were thinking about the ecology of disease, it's not just about the ecology of that region, but we need to think about also the ecology of, of the regime of capitalism. <laughs> Uh, if you will, that creates certain conditions for structural violence and inequality that allows certain outbreaks to have much more devastating effects than others in, in particular areas. You know, I think we really need to move away from these kind of patient zero and origin stories when we're talking about outbreaks and really concern ourselves with what are the economic Um, and social and political conditions at play that allow certain outbreaks to be so much more severe than others in different parts of the world.
0: What a terrific insight from history, frankly. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for this conversation. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center.